because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Today, we have a guest I'm really excited about, Dr. Saifedean Amos. Dr. Amos is an economist, but in particular, he's an economist who really values energy. And as we'll talk about in the interview, he is really leading the charge to get energy and an understanding of the fundamentality of energy to human capability and human prosperity in more in economics and in particular in free market or what's often called Austrian economics, which is a lot of his intellectual background or actually more specifically, he started out with not that background, but he came to agree with it, uh, I think for very good reasons. So uh, I've just finished the discussion. I just finished it a, a few hours ago. So it's really interesting. We cover a bunch on energy, but also a bunch on other topics, uh, including Bitcoin, Austrian economics, freedom. So hopefully you enjoy the wide ranging nature. If you just enjoy discussions about energy, then you'll just have to find those. There are a lot of those as well. So without further ado, uh, I will be joined in a second by Dr. Saifedean Amos. Dr. Saifedean Amos, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you very much for having me, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. I'm very uh, excited about this. I, I don't think I've met any other economists who come from kind of a general economics background who believe that energy needs to be more incorporated in economics. So I'm super excited to uh, talk to you about that. But first, let's get a little background. So you're known as free market economist. Uh, you're very well known in the Bitcoin field, and then you sometimes comment on energy. So is there any way you can in interweave all of these into some sort of uh, quick background story? Um, I can, but it won't be quick. <laughs> so, okay, that's okay. We got time. Okay, so I guess uh, it started with my undergraduate degree where I studied uh, mechanical engineering. And, um, you know, I, I always had a little bit of a fascination with cars and engines and all of that stuff, even as a kid. And then I studied it in college, and um, it, it was something that I, you know, I like to think of myself as an engineer, you know, though I didn't really work in engineering because then uh, for my postgraduate studies, I studied uh, economics and in particular sustainable development. That was the uh, PhD program that I uh, studied. And, you know, that was, um, as you can imagine, a program in sustainable development is all about uh, the evils of uh, the human race and pollution and how we're destroying the planet and, you know, how we need uh, very drastic sacrifices in order to save the planet. And this is so, so were you attracted to that? Like what? Yeah, I'm uh, curious what, what your mindset was going into it, because like... I would have avoided sustainable development because I would consider it as part of the modern environmental movement. So I'm curious how you thought of it at the time. At that time, I was more interested in the economic aspect of it. And I didn't quite see the, uh, I, I didn't have an in-depth um, understanding of the topic that, may, that would have uh, made me critical of this kind of uh, message. At that point, I thought, you know, um, th this is a scientific question that uh, scientists will need to find a scientific solution for um, figuring out an, a source of energy that is not polluting and figuring out uh, how we can uh, provide for seven, eight billion people without uh, destroying the earth. So for me, this was like uh, almost like an, an interesting intellectual engineering challenge. Um, gotcha. 
and, and, and it was only after I had started studying uh, the PhD that I started to have serious um, questions about just uh, the, the, the basic assumptions of the program and uh, of the entire topic and the way that it approaches these questions. And in particular, um, you know, uh, I, I did my PhD. Uh, my thesis was on, uh, on biofuels, in particular U.S. and uh, EU policies toward biofuel and the effect that they had. And so I started off with a little bit of an agnostic uh, take on this and thinking that I could just approach this from an engineering perspective and figuring out, figure out you know, the, the, the correct public policy approach in order to use uh, biofuels to optimize uh, um, for the environmental and energy and economic goals that are needed. And, the, and you know, the, 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 the story for biofuels, like most uh, sustainable or uh, renewable fuels, and I place these in quotation marks, is usually one of um, several feel-good stories together. So this is going to give us energy independence and it's going to end carbon emissions and save the environment and, uh, you know, be much cheaper and support the farmers and give every girl a pony or something along those lines. Um, and so-, so did, you, did you think that, I'm just curious, just cause you're already so uh, immersed in economics, like at the beginning of this, you mentioned you looked at it from an engineering perspective, but did you have a, the sense that there was at least a strong possibility that this could be a scalable substitute for hydrocarbons? Um, I was a little bit skeptical at the beginning because I could see, you know, uh, from the first things that you could hear about biofuels was just the enormous environmental damage that they did. So I must admit, you know, I was I was never uh, a, a biofuels fan. Like I was never coming at it from the perspective of this is going to save the world. It was more of, hmm, let's see, is this actually going to save the world or is it going to turn out to be a bad idea? And yeah, I, I, I suspected it was a bad idea, but then I had to really dig in in order to get uh, a true sense of just how much of a bad idea it was. Uh, and, and that really was what made me into a free market economist. And so in particular, trying to figure out the uh, the, the uh, cost and energy implications of uh, energy and environmental implications of uh, utilizing biofuels led me down the rabbit hole of reading Karl Popper and then reading Friedrich Hayek and reading uh, Austrian school economists and Ludwig von Mises and thinking very critically about the entire notion of economic calculation and the Austrians have an extremely powerful critique of um, economic calculation, uh, centralized economic calculation in particular, the idea that you can have a central authority perform economic calculations without resorting to individual prices and without allowing individuals to make their own decisions based on market prices. And this, you know, um, Mises wrote this book in 1922, I think, and it was called Socialism. And it was it really was the most powerful critique of socialism. And even though there have been a lot of critiques of socialism since then, and a lot of people will tell you that, you know, the problem with socialism is the problem of incentives and the problem of how do we reach a political agreement. But I think none of them touches on the economic problem of socialism quite as astutely as uh, Mises does, which is uh, when he identifies it as the problem of calculation. Without a free market, in the uh, in capital goods, without there being a free market that allows capital goods to be bought and sold freely, without any monopolies uh, protecting their owners, without that, then you cannot have a market uh, that, to allocate 
these capital goods into their most productive uses. And so capital ends up being utilized in places where it's not productive. And so capital is effectively wasted and economic production and the, and, and the stages of economic production start to fall apart and it doesn't work. And and can you give a, can you give a, just because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably more familiar with this than most, but could you give just a concrete example illustrating the calculation problem? Yeah, I think the, the, the you know, the, the classic example, of course, is the Soviet economy, and it was what uh, Mises was uh, discussing initially. And, uh, you know, 100 years later, we or uh, 70 years later, when the Soviet Union fell apart, it was, uh, it, it was exactly like what Mises had described, which is, um, what he said was, if you don't have a free market, if you don't have, um, it, it, so think about, say, the, the Soviet uh, um, central planners deciding what to do with their um, steel factory output. So they have a bunch of steel. Where should they put it? Should it be in the trains or should it be in the cars? Without a market for steel and without a market for the capital goods that go into making cars and trains, there's no rational mechanism that can allow us to figure out whether we need more trains or more cars. And it's not a question that can be solved if we get more uh, smart people to try and answer it or if we get faster computers. What is needed for that problem to be solved is individuals who will take the car and who will take the train to be able to perform economic calculation of the different costs and different options and uh, compare them to their own preferences, the time it takes, how much they like it. And then that will determine whether the car factory or the um, train factory is able to uh, bid for the uh, steel and use it to produce its cars. And so if you take away the process of the, if the car factory and the train factory and the steel factory are all owned by the same entity and there's no market for steel, and so somebody needs to decide where the steel goes between the car factory and the uh, train factory. But without prices, without a free market in capital, and without a free market in the final goods, in the trains and in the cars and in, uh, in the final goods that go into making this, there's no rational basis for performing the economic calculation. And so there's no way to be able to decide which one works better. Uh, an example that struck me, and I forget if this was in human action or I just, it was near when I was reading human action, but that really made concrete to me how important it is to really identify what is of value to people. And the Austrians call it subjective value and uh, objectivism calls it socially ob objective value. But I remember this example of like, you could build, like you think of, oh, it's a productive activity to build um, a building. But it, the idea was you could actually take this brick and labor and steel, and it could actually be destructive. Like the building could actually be worth less than those inputs. And because human beings have finite time and thus finite time to produce resources, you're actually destroying value. And then a more sophisticated version of that is, okay, it could be somewhat productive to build this, but it could be way more productive to do something else with the bricks. And so in that case, it's not an, an outright destructive thing, but it's suboptimal. And ultimately that means that people are going to have less uh, value. It just struck me as I had, I had previously like a very physical view of wealth that like, oh, you're just creating wealth by like putting physical things together. But ultimately, whether it's wealth or not, and how much wealth it is depends on the evaluation of the consumer of that. And the only way to know that is through consumers being free to choose among different values. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's a very, very good uh, example and a very good way of putting it because, you know, the, the, the ends of all economic activity is to satisfy human wants and human needs. And uh, there's no objective way to quantify these or to find the way of systematically uh, producing the maximum of this from some central planner's uh, position. Uh, this is just entirely dependent on how people think of those things and how people value those things. And so the only way that you can arrive at economic um, at economic uh, allocation of resources that is the most efficient for the people concerned is if the people that are concerned themselves are able to make the decisions based on the true costs involved in in, in the production. Gotcha. Um, so that was, a, I'm glad we went on that. Just so that people know, what would you recommend if people are interested in Austrian economics and theory of economic calculation, what would be a good first thing for them to read? On the, on, uh, on, on the economic calculation, there's an excellent paper by Murray Rothbard called, called um, The Socialist Calculation Debate Revisited. And it was written, I think, in 1992 or 93. Um, it was one of Rothbard's last papers right before he died. And it was after the communist union had uh, collapsed. And so it was Rothbard who was Mises' student writing about the debate over 70 years and the evolution of the debate from Mises' original arguments through all the socialist attempts at uh, responding to it, and then um, you know the, the, the Austrian responses, and then how essentially the collapse of the Soviet Union was just the, the, the full validation of, of what Mises had said. So I highly recommend that uh, paper in particular. Um, and in general, you know, if you if, if interested more in Austrian economics, I, I teach uh, a course on Austrian economics where we discuss this in depth on my website, safedean.com. So there's the and tell them how to spell that because it's not intuitive yeah. how to spell it. Uh, Safedean is S A I F E D E A N. Um, safedean.com. Uh, perfect. Okay, so I interrupted your story just to get clear on the Austrian issue. But so you've now gone from like interest in biofuels, like seeing the problems with biofuels, becoming interested in uh, Austrian economics. By the way, I guess you should tell them what what is Austrian economics and why is it called Austrian economics? Because it's it's yeah. really you can think of it as like pro freedom economics or truly capitalist yeah. economics. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it, it's essentially this Austrian school of uh, economics uh, was what was being taught in the University of Vienna up until about 1914 or 1930s. Um, the it, it's it's one of the main intellectual traditions of uh, economics education in Europe at that time. The uh, thing that makes it uh, distinguishes it is that it was much more of a um, I mean, the foundation of the school was by a guy called Karl Menger, and what distinguishes his approach is subjectivism, which we were discussing a few minutes ago, in that it's, it's the school that recognizes that all value is subjective and all value exists in human mind. And um, from, you know, from that, I guess you can, you, you can then see why it is um, so strongly associated with libertarianism, because if ultimately you think valuation is about the individual, then there's, you know, you're really rigging the game in favor of the individual. And I think, um, I think you and I agree. This is uh, uh, this is really the only moral, morally consistent uh, way to morally consistent solution to the problem of um, ownership of human time and human effort. Who gets to own me? Um, you know, so uh, my, my body and my time is scarce. And so somebody has to be able to own it. 
um, and, and to direct it into the thing, in, into the ways in which they want it. And the only logically and morally coherent position is that I should get to own it because any other, um, and any other position is going to uh, result in conflict effectively if we have any kind of situation in which one person gets to own others. Um, so I guess the, what, what distinguishes the Austrian school is that it, 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 it was, um, its focus on liberty made it a bit of a pariah from uh, academic economics. And so throughout the 20th century, very few Austrian school economists were uh, prominent in uh, most universities uh, because most universities were uh, ultimately about, uh, uh, you know, they were sponsored by governments after the 1930s and a big part of their, um, a big part of their, uh, entire raison d'etre was to uh, provide policy advice for government and to tell government how to fix the economy and how to achieve low unemployment and how to do those things. Whereas from the Austrian perspective, you know, the entire notion of government interfering in the economy is counterproductive. And the only thing government needs to do is to get out of the way. So you can imagine that's not exactly the best way to get a job in a, a government-sponsored university. <laughs> Yeah, well, so let's go to the next. So what's the next stage and when do you get of your evolution? When do you get to Bitcoin? Because you're you know, now very renowned in the yeah. Bitcoin world. Okay, so we start reading the Austrian economy. By the way, you seem to be drawn to controversial uh, <laughs> things, which I guess one could say of me as well. Yeah, I guess. Well, I, 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 I would say it's not us. It's everybody else. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel. I feel like I just go to things that make sense. And I wish everyone else agreed, and I'm trying to do it, but I, think, you I, know, can't, you, I can't believe things that don't make any you're sense. One of, you're one of the few people who's not a hypocrite about the things that they need to survive. Like, you know you need uh, hydrocarbons to survive, and you're at peace with yourself. I think everybody else is living in this fantasy land where they need hydrocarbons to survive every day, but they like to pretend that they're better than hydrocarbons. <laughs> so, someone once described it, I don't know if anyone, people might be offended by this analogy, but someone at a talk of mine a long time ago once described this as like the view of sex in the 40s and 50s, like the idea that like no one actually, you could never talk about it, but people were actually having it. And it's sort of similar, yep. like, oh, you're not allowed, this is like the guilty pleasure, except it's, I mean, I think sex is crucially important and shouldn't be a guilty pleasure, but I mean, yeah. hydrocarbons just as much so, whereas this is actually allowing you to live as a human being instead of like as, as an animal on the verge of starvation and imperiled uh, by nature. But uh, anyway, I, uh, I digress. Yes. Um, so, so effectively one, then once I start looking into the Austrian perspective on economics, um, I arrive at a completely different conclusion about my PhD and it changes from, you know, here it changes from a policy paper where here's what the right policy should be on biofuels into a critique of the entire notion that there should be such a thing as government intervention in the arena of energy. And, um, you know, the, the conclusion that I was arriving at was uh, there's no reason for any kind of intervention. All that you're doing is distorting market signals and um, giving an incentive for more wasteful forms of energy to continue to be used. And you see this repeatedly happen with things like uh, um, biofuels and wind and solar. And so that really, you know, um, I have to say, it was only after reading your book that I came to really articulate this, but by around 2009, 10, 11, when I finished my PhD, I had a very clear idea that all of these, um, you know, all, all of this constant uh, science by press release, which is constantly promising us that the new researchers at this university have 
figured out in this new technology that's going to potentially, that may potentially lead to biofuels constituting 70% of the fuel supply, blah, blah, blah. This is just essentially worthless. And I, I, I knew that, you know, plastics and energy is very important all over our life. But then it was really your book that really made me understand and articulate that clearly well. Like you put it out there very clearly and, and you, you unapologetically just laid out all the things we need fossil fuels for, which I had studied many, many years ago as an engineer um, in passing. But, you know, trying to think about them in the perspective of, well, what happens if we don't have that stuff? What are the alternatives? Just how expensive is life in that sense? How, how dangerous would life be? Was, um, was really, really amazing. So thank you again for your book. Uh, how did you, well, you're welcome. Thanks for reading it. So when did you read it and what, what brought it to your attention? I don't know. I, I honestly don't remember. But I'm, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm an extremely. Um, I, I read very widely on the internet. I surf the internet widely, and I pick up all kinds of things. And uh, you know, I'm, I, 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 I don't really read newspapers, and I don't keep up with the news, which allows me to uh, find all kinds of um, interesting things online. Which is how you know you end up uh, <laughs> reading about Bitcoin and uh, your book and so on. Yeah, that's interesting. I have, I, I consider it a vice actually how little I read the news. I'm very, I mean, it has a lot of benefits. I think the main, the main benefit I find is that I just like, I find much higher quality ideas uh, by reading. And I just like, I get exposed to just such a higher density of good thinkers. And then that informs my own thinking because if I'm reading about energy, even like if, you know, I'll read Michael Schellenberger's book on energy, just to give an example. And like, I'll get, he has a lot of concrete examples, but he's picking the best examples that he can think of across the years versus, I actually like his Twitter a lot. So I'll follow his Twitter. His is unusually good. But if you just like follow energy on Twitter, it's just whatever the media happened to think was relevant and what people's uh, responses. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not surprising that I think, I think it's hard to be, like a good thinker and aware of good thinking across a lot of fields if you're just reading news. But if you have time to read books, then you can just read, you know, five good books on energy, five good books on Austrian economics, and you'll find some good stuff. I mean, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be aware of like good thinking in a whole bunch of areas. Absolutely. I entirely agree with you. Um, so this is, this is where the energy comes in. Now, uh, the other thing that was interesting was, as I started learning about Austrian economics, one area of Austrian economics that is um, maybe the most, well, the one for which they're most famous is monetary economics, because Austrian economics and uh, the economics that you learn at university are as different as astronomy and astrology when it comes to <laughs> the issues of money. And, uh, you know, I mean- Do you regard that as the relative truth status of them? Um, I mean, not, not, not necessarily, but I think it's, <laughs> I think, it, it, well, it, it's not that it's the truth, but I guess it's, the Austrians make an effort to make sense, at least, whereas the mainstream Keynesian treatment of the issue of money and um, uh, central banking is, 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 is quite clearly an intellectually dishonest attempt to find an, uh, a, a, an explanation for an answer that's already given. You know, we know that governments want to spend money and take over the central banks. Now let's make up some excuses for why. And th th there's a fundamental difference between that and, um, you know, the, the, the method of economics which had uh, been 
applied for many centuries across many different countries and cultures and carried over from uh, one civilization to the other of, um, you know, the, the method of economic reasoning, which was refined really around the turn of the 20th century with marginal analysis. Um, so it's not so much that it is absolute truth. It's just in terms of methodology, the two methodologies are entirely incompatible. So they, they can't both be right in the same sense that, uh, you know, astronomy looks at the stars and, um, you know, uh, estimates the times and the movements. Astrology will try and relate that to your love life. So there's a completely different uh, set of tools there. And, you know, the, the, the Keynesian perspective is the aggregate um, analysis, and it's all about centralized calculations. So it's all about looking at aggregate measures, like the total number of people who are unemployed and finding some scientific relationship between that and the percentage rate of um, price increases. And then, um, you know, the amount of aggregate consumption in society and the aggregate investment. And uh, it, it, it's physics envy because it tries to treat these as if they are um, physical constants for which we can find uh, scientific relationships. You know, in the same way that we have, say, um, the um, PV equals to NRT, the other equation in chemistry. Physics, uh, I mean, um, macroeconomics is an attempt to try and apply these equations to human society that we could make equations like that on things like unemployment and GDP and inflation. And it's been a largely disastrous attempt to apply those things because human, um, you, you, you can't calculate in issues of human affairs in, in, in the same way that you do with um, physical objects and you can't experiment on human beings the same way that you experiment with human objects. Um, so the, 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 uh, the, the, the the disagreement on money is very substantial because from the Austrian perspective, money should be whatever the free market chooses as money. And there's good reasons why that usually and traditionally ends up being gold and silver or just gold. Um, and so if left, if the market was left on its own, you'd have a monetary system be built around gold. Now, Wait, from- so I just want to make this, I just want people to understand this because this is a, a radical idea of the, I totally agree with it. I mean, basically it just means that people should be free to choose the money they use versus somebody holds a gun to your head and says, you have to use this currency regardless of what we do to it. And you have to accept it even if you think it's getting inflated. Uh, so to just explain a little bit about what a free market and money means. Yeah, I think, and I mentioned this in my book, The Bitcoin Standard. I think, you know, I, I explained why it is that gold became money. And it wasn't because governments chose gold as money. You know, ideally, obviously, governments would prefer to make money out of something that's easier uh, to produce because then they could print more of it. But of course, the problem they face is that if they make their money out of something easy to produce, the value drops. Nobody wants to hold it. Nobody outside their country wants to accept it. So the value collapses. And that's why historically money ends up being uh, gold because gold was the hardest thing to produce. It's very hard to find gold. And most importantly, it's not just that it's rare in the crust of the earth. It's rare in the crust of the earth. And the quantity that is produced every year is tiny compared to the existing stockpiles. And so this is, uh, this is something called the stock to flow ratio, the ratio of the existing stockpiles of uh, a metal to the annual production. What, this ratio is usually in the range of one for all industrial metals or for all commodities. So for copper, for oil, if you measure the total amount of copper or oil that is uh, in existence today in stockpiles, in, uh, in, in storage anywhere, 
it would be roughly around the range of annual production. It could be 50%, it could be 200%, but it's somewhere around the range of one. That, because nobody holds on to large quantities of copper in storage or oil. You know, it's, it's made to be produced and consumed and, many, and, and, and employed. Um, so this is not true in the case of uh, gold and to a lesser extent silver, because gold is indestructible effectively. You can't, um, you, you can't destroy gold in any meaningful sense. And so all the gold that we've been uh, producing for thousands of years has, could be, ha has just been piling up. So annual production this year, even though we now have much more advanced technology for mining gold, and even though this year we're going to be mining more gold than we did in any year before, because all of the production of all the years before has not been used anywhere else, because it's, uh, sorry, it has not been consumed, it's still sitting there somewhere. It's, it's, it's in uh, somebody's vault or in somebody's uh, necklace. Um, so annual production every year is a tiny little fraction compared to the existing stockpile. In other words, the supply can only grow by a small percentage. And if you look at data from the US Geological Survey, as I do in my book, you see that that rate has been around one and a half to 2% for the last 100 years or so. So gold has a supply growth rate of one and a half to 2%. And I argue this is the reason why it became money. Silver has the second uh, highest stock to flow ratio. So uh, a growth, supply growth rate of one and a half percent means the stock to flow ratio of about 60 because the stock to flow is just the inverse of the uh, supply growth rate. Silver stock to flow ratio historically was around 20. Now it's probably a little bit lower um, because silver is becoming more of an industrial metal and it's being used more and more for industrial uses and not monetary uses. So um, in, in my mind, I think in, in, in a free market, people will just end up using the thing that is the hardest to produce as money because uh, A, they will understand that this thing will uh, hold on to value better. And B, even if they don't understand it, uh, the people who hold other things will just witness the value of those other things uh, decline while the value of the money held by other people uh, that is harder continues to increase. So whether through, you know, um, rational planning or through just uh, Darwinian uh, selection, um, money will end up being stored in the hardest money because money stored in the less hard money will end up just losing its value. Got it. So let me just make sure uh, I, un I understand. So it's, it's that, so we're talking about, I mean, it might be helpful to have the idea of just uh, medium of exchange or indirect exchange. So it's like, you know, it's a huge advantage to not have to barter everything, if you've already anything, it causes a million problems. And I would highly recommend people get the Bitcoin standard, which I haven't finished, but the sections at the beginning on money, I think are super, super clear in terms of explaining the origin of money uh, and the you know, Austrian view and other views on this. So definitely recommend that. But basically we need a medium of indirect exchange and a huge benefit is if it retains its value. Like if it doesn't retain its value, if it can be inflated on demand or even it can just be produced on demand, then it's not going to hold its value. And then it causes all sorts of problems and maybe you'll just like hold on to your cows instead because you know because that's as bad as that is in terms of um barter okay so we've got that in terms of gold so how do you then get to uh, bitcoin which is really fascinating in its properties yeah so um you arrive at the, at the idea that in a free market gold would be money so then why isn't gold more widely used as money and the answer is effectively that um, governments have um criminalized uh, or banned the use of gold as money because um, when central banks had, when banks used gold, 
um, governments essentially took over the gold. And in most industrial countries, there was a point at which gold was confiscated. In the US in 1934, government confiscated the gold from um, from the banks. And it happened in Britain in about 1915 during the First World War. And it happened in most countries. Governments would just take over the gold and then it all gets centralized in their uh, vaults. And then it all um, leads to uh, essentially allows governments to go and print their own money, which is back, supposedly backed by gold, but they continue to print more and more of it. And then eventually they suspend redeemability. So now we're just using their money that's not redeemable in gold. So the astonishing thing about Bitcoin is that it is just, I think if I were to describe it simply, uh, it, it's gold, but it's gold that can't be stopped by government. That's really the, uh, the, the that's really, I think, the, the sales pitch. In a sense, I think if, if we had a free market, then, you know, anybody can start a monetary system based on anything. And I would, I believe what would work best would be something like a gold-based payment system. So you'd have an app. So just like your current, uh, you use PayPal or Venmo or whatever. But instead of moving uh, units of dollars, I think what would win in a free market would be gold. Um, If we had the ability of... uh, Um, moving and settling gold around the world freely, I think people would rather use and settle with gold. But we don't because, you know, international banks and central banks uh, don't use gold and they prevent its use for uh, payment and settlement. And in fact, there was an example in the 1990s where somebody set up something called e-gold, where that was the idea. You know, you would send them US dollars, they'd buy physical gold in exchange for all of the US dollars that they get, and then they'd issue uh, essentially digital certificates that you could transfer to other people. So you and I could have accounts on eGold. And then if I want to buy something from you, I just send you some of the gold that I have in that vault. And now that gold is under your name. And, um, you know, that business was taking off and it was doing fine. And then it was shut down and it was shut down. You know, they say money laundry or so on, but there's really very little um, convincing evidence that they did anything wrong. And it was just... Uh, Uh, you know, protecting the government's monopoly on money, which is uh, what legal tender laws are all about. So Bitcoin is this crazy idea of recreating gold's scarcity in a digital way and um, in a way that cannot be compromised uh, by governments, that can't be centralized. That's really the key thing, that there's, that that ultimately the, the way that the system works is that it has to work through thousands of different nodes distributed all over the world, agreeing on consensus terms every 10 minutes. And uh, no single node can enforce rules of consensus on every other node. And so it becomes, uh, you know, it, it, it becomes set in stone. So the monetary policy of Bitcoin has been around for 12 years now, and nobody's been able to change it, which is astonishing if you think about it. You know, you, no central bank has this kind of track record. Central banks can't stick to their word for a weekend. You know, if you remember in 2008, you know, all right, we, this is it, we're done. We fixed the central bank, we've still fixed the banking system and everything's fine. And then you wake up Monday morning and, oh no, we're not done. Here's another $3 trillion. And, you know, th- that kind of credibility does not exist in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is full credibility. It's, it's stuck to its issuance schedule. So every, every 10 minutes, new Bitcoins are created. And for the past 12 years, it's stuck to its exact issuance schedule. And 
you know, there's uh, the technical reasons for that. I guess might be a little bit complicated, but I think um, I get into them into the book, and you can read more about them. But I think the the, the more uh, significant thing is about uh, as as an economist, what I found the most interesting thing about it is assuming this thing actually works, which it has done for the past twelve years. Well, what are the implications of the um, availability of a hard money internationally? The fact that everybody in the world right now can save in a form of money that is no longer debasable by governments. I think the implications of this are enormous because if you look at just how much of world's of the world's prosperity um, has, has been destroyed over the past century because governments have been able to print money whenever they wanted to, I think an enormous amount of suffering all over the world has been caused by uh, hyperinflation. But I th- and, and, and that gets a lot of attention, but I think perhaps even more devastating is just the long-term impacts of constant high inflation, not just hyperinflation. So if, you, if everybody expects that their money is losing value at a rate of 5 or 10% per year, which for the vast majority of the world in the past century, that was really the case. Um, you know, in the, in the US and Europe, inflation was not that bad most of the time, but in most other countries, it usually is bad. It's usually 5% and above and 10, 20% and so on. So in that kind of world in which people expect to constantly witness the value of their labor de- being devalued if they save it, um, I, I believe it, it drives people toward uh, much more of a present orientation in their life. And it, it, it discourages thinking of the future. It discourages planning for the future and discourages saving. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I know you said there's, you don't wanna, we don't need to go into all the technical details, but there's this fascinating thing from a layman's perspective about Bitcoin, because you would think the easiest thing to replicate would be something digital, right? You just change numbers on your computer, you just hit times two and just equals equals, and you could make it as big. So how is it that Bitcoin, and, and um, you know, I've gotten a preview, I know you're working on a book on economics, and, and it's fascinating because you talk about Bitcoin as unique among resources in that we can't create much more of it. Whereas something like gold, like you could create a lot more of it. It just wouldn't be worth the time that it took. But how is it that, yeah, something digital is uniquely limited? Yeah. I mean, I think Bitcoin is the first example of digital scarcity. Before Bitcoin was invented, we never had anything that was digital and scarce. As you said, you know, if it's digital, it's just a bunch of zeros and ones. And all you need to do is to just, you know, click copy and paste and you've got two of it. You know, when you send somebody an email, you're not actually sending the contents of the email, you're sending them a copy of the contents of the email and your sent folder will continue to have the same, uh, a similar copy. Um, but effectively the way Bitcoin does it is, um, it's, it's w- what's unique here are the codes that are needed in order to access the Bitcoins. And so by, um, you know, it, it, it's really by resorting to the kind of cryptography that, um, that that we use in many of the applications that make modern life possible. You know, it's what makes credit cards possible. It's what makes online encryption and online commerce possible. Um, effectively, the how do we say that? Uh, how I could, I could say I could, I could say that um, the the code that you need in order to access the coins that you have on the network is so hard to guess. It's it, it, the, the, the possible combinations that are needed in order to get the correct code. I mean, think about Bitcoin as let's say, um, it's, it's a bunch of um, uh, bank safes in the sky, in the cloud. 
And it's like you have 21 million uh, bank safes. And uh, well, it's 21 million coins that can be distributed into a very large number of safes all over the world. And in order to access one of those safes, you need the password for it. So even though it's not actually physical, the fact that you are able to know the password that allows you access to those coins effectively um, replicates scarcity, even though there's nothing physical that's being made into scarce, uh, uh, that, that is scarce, uh, the, the, the ability of you, the, your ability to maintain secret, the knowledge of the private keys that allow you access to the Bitcoin, effectively make that thing scarce. And then the rules of the network that govern the creation of new Bitcoin are such that it's practically impossible to break them in a way that um, generates more Bitcoins. In other words, the, the way that the network has functioned since its inception has been that everybody needs to agree to the rules of the network every 10 minutes. And so for the past 10 years, every 10 minutes, everybody has agreed that we're going to be issuing uh, coins according to the schedule. And now the only way that you can change the schedule, the way that this works, because it's a distributed network, is you need everybody to agree to change it at the same time. And this is, you know, it's not just unlikely because it's a massively complicated coordination of problem, but it's also extremely unlikely because everybody who's in the system has a vested interest in it remaining stable. And that's mm -hmm. why people who have tried to change the, to change Bitcoin have ended up failing quite miserably at it because it's not something that can be done. Um, well, it's, it basically can't be done. Yeah, that's what I would say. And I mean, I know it sounds a little bit um, outlandish to say it like that, but uh, it, it, as long as some people want to continue to run the original Bitcoin implementation with only 21 million coins, there's basically nothing you can do to stop them. That's just the so way. So is 21 million the upper limit? Yeah, there'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. Yeah, I mean, this. uh, uh I'll switch the subject in a second, but I, I should say that I find Bitcoin really fascinating. And, it, you know, we didn't mention Satoshi Nakamoto, who's you know, this anonymous uh, guy. I don't think anyone has discovered who he is, at least last time I checked. But, I mean, just that you could create something like this. You could create something that's like digital and finite and has this property as a money. And then that this is actually something that's incredibly hard for governments to stop. So you just think about at least exchange of any kind of digital service it just, it leaves, I mean, it's such an interesting way to get around government coercion because you're using technology to do it. And I wish you could do this in everything. And I don't know a way of doing it in, all, in a lot of things because, you know, it's something like energy, you actually have to build the physical yeah. uh, facilities. But in, in the realm of money, which is, I mean, money is like the only thing as fundamental as energy in terms of just the, yeah. the, the core value in the economy. So it's, it's great that this is happening. I, I, I'm, I'm going to blow your mind a little bit now with, um, you know, if, okay. you, if we had something to do this with energy. I'm going to present you the hypothesis that actually Bitcoin is going to do the same thing to the energy markets that it does okay. to the money market. I hope, I hope I'm convinced. Um, and, and, and the amazing thing about Bitcoin is, um, I don't know if you, how, how familiar you are with the process of Bitcoin mining, how Bitcoins come into play. How, how Bitcoins I am, well... I'm more familiar than the audiences, so you can okay. just explain a, a little. But I mean, I think the thing people know is that it involves large amounts of energy because you've had just as there's, you know, now there's flight shaming, there's Netflix shaming, there's definitely yeah. Bitcoin shaming 
going on, although I don't think the Bitcoin people are too easily shamed. No, basically, if you've gotten into Bitcoin at this point, you know, you're, you're pretty immune to, uh, you've, got, you've already had a lot of arrows slung at you, so this one isn't going to make much of a difference. Um, the, the interesting thing about Bitcoin mining is that, uh, going back to the issue of the supply, Bitcoin supply is capped at 21 million. However, Bitcoin how many are there right now? There's about 18 and a half um, so far. Um, and so in the first 12 years, we've produced 18 and a half. And in the next 100 years or so, we're going to be producing the other uh, two and a half. Uh, oh. Yeah. So the supply, you know, it, it grows at a, uh, it, it starts growing very, really quickly and then it tapers off. And so now we're already at the point where annual growth rate is at around uh, 2%, a little less than 2%. So it's already growing at the same rate as gold or close to the same rate as gold. But um, so the way that Bitcoin maintains its supply uh, at 21 million, even though anybody can mine Bitcoin, you know, you and I can try and mine Bitcoin right now, is that Bitcoin mining is similar to all kinds of other metals or uh, uh, resource mining in that, you know, with gold or with oil or with copper or with all of those things, the more we dig, the more we find. And this, of course, goes back to the work of uh, one of our uh, mutual heroes, Julian Simon, who you mentioned in your book and I mentioned in my book. Um, you know, he, 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 he really explains very well how really the ultimate resource is human time, because with more human time, we can keep digging and finding more um, copper, oil, gold, whatever it is. We've never run out of those things. And the more we dig, the more we find. So there is the, 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 um, the constraint on how much we have of those things is just the opportunity cost in terms of other things, because it's only about how much time we dedicate to them. Bitcoin is unique because it's the one- So thing opportunity cost, just sorry to keep asking for it, but it's the value right. of the alternative uses of time, right? Exactly. So we could have twice as much oil or twice as much copper as we have, or twice as much gold as we have. We could do it, except it's just we don't do it because the cost in terms of the foregone other things would be enormous. You know, If we give up on, say, uh, producing laptops and move everybody involved in the laptop industry into digging for oil, and everything involved in the computer industry moves into digging for more oil. Yeah, we can have more oil, but what are we going to do with it? You know, the economics is what determines the scarcity of it and, and how much resources we dedicate to it. By but the way, this is, this is, sorry, just because you mentioned this point, like this is yes. a great point for people to realize in connection to something like a Bernie Sanders energy plan, because yeah. it'll talk about like, oh, if we put all of our resources together, we can generate the same amount of energy we use now. Uh, and like with solar wind. Now, I don't even know if that's true, but what if you could do that and it took 95% of human time to do that? You would just be generating it to generate it. You wouldn't even be able to use it. It wouldn't produce anything else. And so I just think it's this, this great point that human time is, and, and so it's, it's the whole thing with energy is not simply to produce, um, you know, 200,000 machine calories per person. It's to do it in a small amount of time so that we have time to actually do uh, other things. So I just thought of that in connection with your point. Absolutely. I mean, and this is what I mentioned in the book that uh, in my new book that I'm working on, the economics textbook, Principles of Economics, and that, you know, all economics is just our attempt to increase the uh, quantity of time that we have on earth and the quality of the time that we have on earth. So we're constantly economizing to try and make our time better, to increase the productivity of our time, to increase the productivity of the labor that we engage in. And we do all these things that we do as economic action, all of our economic actions are with that end in mind. 
And for me, you know, energy is one of those very important ones. And it's why um, I think, you know, I, I give it a, um, a pretty significant chapter in the book because I think, um, I don't think economics has done as much, uh, as good a job as it should in just formalizing how we think about energy um, as you did in your book. Like your idea of just thinking about, um, you know, we use energy because we take, these are like calories of slaves that are working for us. You know, ex explaining the economics of that, I think is, is really important. And so I, I build on that in the book to, for me, this is no different than how trade or capital accumulation, you know, why do we trade? Because trading allows me to economize on my time because I specialize in what's good, what I'm good at, you specialize in what you're good at, and then we both have more of both things. Similarly, um, energy does the same thing. If I'm able to spend my time building an engine rather than, um, you know, working with my hands, by the time the engine is done, the engine is going to allow me to be much more productive. And so... Um, Yes. If it takes enough, if it, if you can do it in a short amount, in a sufficiently short amount of time, which is what's so great about what I, I love, as I've read part of your new book, at least the draft, and it's at some point I'll show you and at some point everyone will see the new version of Moral Case for Fossil Fuels because it's very time oriented and I've just been thinking about that. So actually let me run, we'll still get back to Bitcoin, but I'll just run yeah. like an idea I have of the way I think of energy and how it's evolved because I'm much more economically minded now than I was when I wrote the first book. Okay. Like I think, I think it's really useful to think of energy and often it's useful to think of energy in terms of machine power because that's energy is machine food and the value you get is machine power, which is basically something that expands or amplifies your capabilities. I mean, that's what you want. Like, you know, if you use a machine, you can expand and amplify your capabilities. And so, but then the question, so that's great. So why don't we just, everyone use machines for everything? Well, it's what I call the private jet problem. So I don't know if you've ever flown on a private jet. I've never flown on one by myself, but I've, I have flown with other people like five times and it's great. Like you don't have, you save a lot of time, right? Cause you don't have to go to the airport and TSA and all this stuff. So let's say if I take a private jet to and from an event, I could save like four hours of time. And that's great, right? So why don't I do that? Well, let's just take somebody who makes like $50 an hour. Like, why doesn't he do that? Well, because basically flying the private jet makes him $200, but to produce and power the machine power for that private jet, is probably $50,000. So that's a thousand hours of his time. So in order to produce and power the value equivalent of the private jet, he has to spend a thousand hours to get four hours. And this is like what a washing machine is for people in the impoverished world. Like yep. they can in some way produce a washing machine, but the, the government and the infrastructure and everything else is set up so that they'd have to work their entire life to afford a washing machine. So the Washington the washing machine wouldn't produce time, it would consume time. So the whole thing about energy is really like, how do you have cost effective machine power, machine power that generates either, that produces either more time or higher quality time uh, than it consumes. So I've found that just very clarifying for my own uh, thinking and why fossil fuels are so valuable. It's not just that, it's that we have a way of, in a very small amount of human time, producing the fuel for the machines and then the machines themselves, which are also produced by a lot of other machines run on fossil fuels. And so like, if you increase the price of that, then so many things become non-cost effective. They become like the private jet or like the washing machine for somebody in Zambia. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great way of uh, thinking about it. And I think an another um, great analogy you use is to just think of um, fossil fuels as batteries. And when you think about them this way, you know, these are batteries that you just uh, drive two minutes and then you're at a gas station and you can buy a big giant bucket of this battery that can run your house for a few days for a few dollars. And, you know, Consider about, think about just how much more expensive it would be to buy an actual battery that is able to perform that. So fossil fuels are just much more efficient and decentralized way of um, making batteries effectively because they're batteries that are made by planet Earth that we don't have to manufacture them. So that's, that, that's, that's what makes them so powerful um, and, and, and what allows them to become so economical because you can just bring this energy to work for you in any place at any time because it's so cheap and easy to move around. Um, but now going back to the uh, Bitcoin and energy. Um, so uh, building on all of this thing, the, the interesting thing that Bitcoin does with energy is that um, Bitcoin mining, as I was saying, uh, it, it, you'll never get more than 21 million uh, Bitcoins. And so what happens is that Bitcoin mining is unlike the mining of uh, metals and natural resources, wherein the more we mine, the more we get. Bitcoin mining can be thought of more like a sports competition, wherein there's only going to be one trophy, no matter how many people compete. But the more people compete, the harder it's going to be for you to win the trophy. Mm. Okay? So if, you know, if one person wants to play the U.S. Open and golf, then they get the trophy. If 10 million people try and compete for the U.S. Open, there's only going to be one trophy, but it's just going to be much harder. And so Bitcoin's supply is, uh, you know, the, the amount of coins that are being produced at every 10 minutes is predetermined. Currently, every 10 minutes, we get six and a quarter new coins. And so that adds up to around 900 coins um, a day. Uh, for the first four years in Bitcoin's life, it was 7,200 coins. The second four years, it was 3,600. The third four years, it was 1,800. And now for the fourth era, which just started three months ago, we're at 900 coins a day. So um, that's just going to be the number of Bitcoins that will be produced today, regardless of how many people are using Bitcoin. If seven people are using Bitcoin all over the world, they're going to get 900 new Bitcoins today. If 7 billion people are using Bitcoin all over the world, there's only going to be 900 new Bitcoins today. By using, and, do you mean mining for? Using, mining for, whatever. If Bitcoin was just seven guys on their laptops around the world um, sending magical digital beans to each other, as it was in its first days, we'd still have only 900 Bitcoins produced today. And if the entire planet and the entire global financial system was running on Bitcoin, then there'd only still be 900 Bitcoins produced today, which is really, uh, you know, it, it's quite unique. And I think the implications are tremendous. Um, so the first implication is the one that I talk about in the Bitcoin standard, which is the Bitcoin is the first thing that's strictly scarce. And that's why I think it's, it's the most advanced technology we have for saving, because it's the one thing that you can purchase and not worry about it being inflated uh, through overproduction because nobody else can make more of it. No matter how many billions of people want to try and produce Bitcoin tomorrow, they're all going to have to fight for the new 900 Bitcoins that are going to be produced tomorrow. And nobody can make more than the ones that you have, than the ones that are already scheduled. Um, now, the other implication, which is what matters uh, for energy, is that how this uh, affects Bitcoin mining is absolutely um, amazing because what it means is that 
okay, so now the way the Bitcoin mining works is that these new coins are being handed out. So 900 coins a day, six and a quarter coins every 10 minutes. These are handed out with every block of new Bitcoin transactions that is produced, which happens every 10 minutes roughly. And effectively, everybody who's mining the blocks is, um, is deploying processing power toward solving mathematical problems. And the point of these mathematical problems, the point of solving them is not that you know, you're coming to a solution that's important for its own sake. The only uh, important thing is that it makes, is that solving them is going to consume a lot of computing processing power to force the person to essentially make a cost commitment to the network. And then only if you have made that commitment and solved that problem, are you allowed to attach the new record of transactions, the new block of transactions into the pre-existing blocks. So every, so we have about 600,000 blocks of Bitcoin that have been mined so far, one every 10 minutes. And that's how the transactions are produced. So every 10 minutes, think about Bitcoin as every 10 minutes, we take a new inventory of the coins and we do all the transactions that have happened in the 10 minutes and then everybody agrees about, about them. The way that Bitcoin arrives at consensus is to make sure that the person who gets to um, append the latest block of transactions onto the one that we had all agreed upon, if you're going to be the one that amends it, you won't get to, uh, that appends it, that, that adds the block. If you're going to be the one that does that, you will have to first solve the problem, which means that you have to spend a lot of electricity and a lot of processing power to be able to solve the problem. Make, and, and so it's really expensive to be able to write the record of transactions it's really cheap for everybody else in the network to identify if you lied and you did something fraudulent in that record. If you tried to, let's say, take some of my coins and put them in your coins, or if you tried to do something um, incorrect, it's trivial for everybody else to realize that your block is invalid and they'll kick it off. So what this does is that it encourages you to, um, it means that if you're trying to be dishonest, you're just going to be wasting a lot of money. And that's basically Bitcoin's security model. You have to spend a lot of money in order to be able to attach the block to the existing blocks. And then if you do, and everybody okays it, then you get the new coins, then you get the new reward. It's a little bit roundabout, but the point of it is that only the people who are able to solve the math problems are the ones who are able to get the reward. And so then you have a global competition of people putting in their computers to try and solve these math problems. And the result of it, is that only the most efficient uh, miners are able to solve. And effectively what ends up happening is that if your electricity cost is really low, then you will beat the other miners who have high electricity cost. And so Bitcoin mining is essentially an industry that is really only profitable um, for people who are able to get electricity reliably at prices below seven, eight cents per kilowatt hour. Um, and, and at sometimes it can go down to as little as two or three cents. In fact, but, but so you need very cheap energy because otherwise, uh, you know, the people who have cheap energy are going to be able to win uh, the competition ahead of you. So what this means is that, um, you know, there's all this hysteria about Bitcoin consumes a lot of energy, but the only energy that can really be sustainably uh, profitable on Bitcoin is energy that has very low opportunity cost. It's energy that can't be directed anywhere. So if you have a Bitcoin miner in a city where the city charges 15 cents per kilowatt hour, which is uh, an average, I think, price, 
you're not going to be profitable as a Bitcoin miner. There's no way because you're paying 15 cents per kilowatt hour in order to solve these problems. And you're competing with somebody who's got their Bitcoin miners located, say, in the north of Canada near, um, you know, some uh, methane flare up gas where the, the gas is just being uh, flared into air for free. But instead, it's connected into a miner and basically it's free energy or it comes out to one or two cents per kilowatt hour. Um, so for that guy, they're going to be able to be much more profitable. And, you know, what, what ends up happening is that you won't be solving enough of the problems if you have a high electricity. You won't be so a high electricity bill. You won't be solving enough of the problems to pay off your electricity bill. So Bitcoin mining will always be concentrated in the, in the areas that are most efficient. And I think the most interesting thing about it is that not just the most efficient, but also the most efficient with the least valuable alternative uses. But the other thing about Bitcoin mining is that it's not location sensitive. So you don't have to be next to the cities. You don't have to be in places where energy is um, abundant. And so we see Bitcoin mining moving more and more towards isolated areas, and we see it moving off grid. And we, seeing, we see it essentially now acting as a subsidy for anybody who has cheap sources of energy. And I think this is, um, this is massively powerful because it's just going to lead to more and more and more development of off-grid, low-cost energy sources. And um, it, it, it's, it's going to provide a lot of money for these uh, isolated energy sources and then allow for more and more development to happen around them. It's, it's a way to monetize energy anywhere in the world. It's the cheapest way to export energy. That's the thing about Bitcoin. So if you know of... Um, you know, a, a, a waterfall somewhere that's completely isolated. That's a lot of energy. But if you wanted to use it in order to uh, make anything, you know, you can't just sell it to the nearest city because you need to build a massive uh, mm. line to sell the energy. But with Bitcoin, you can just have it mine in the middle of nowhere and you would export it through satellite via very tiny little amounts of data. And so you can, it's amazing. If you think about it, it's, it's, it's the most liquid form of energy. You can sell and import and export energy anywhere in the world. Well, import, no, but you can export energy from anywhere in the world uh, because you can, you, you can export it in the, fo in the form of solved mathematical problems that require a lot of energy. Yeah, I don't export is an interesting term for it. I mean, it, it's an effect. I mean, you can sell it. Uh, on the international market, but you're consuming it in the location, right? Yeah. So is the idea that let's say somebody, I mean, I'm thinking of Congo, which is not a good example, maybe because of political stability, but let's say like somebody could make a pitch to that area and say, look, you've got all this untapped hydro, we're going to set up a Bitcoin mining project. And then is the idea that would somehow uh, begin the infrastructure that would allow them to electrify? I think so. I think we're going to be seeing more of this because, um, you know, uh, you, you can run, you, you can monetize it without having to make extensive um, infrastructure development. Like you don't. But need then will the infrastructure development occur ever or will it just always be Bitcoin? I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's an open question, but I think, um, I think, you know, if you develop the, if you can monetize on this energy, then you can build infrastructure for the um, for the Bitcoin mining. And then once you have infrastructure there, and once you've financed it, then it becomes 
more and more economical. Um, it becomes more economical to be able to build extra resources. Um, I mean, extra development, residential or commercial or uh, industrial developments around there. Yeah, I could, I could, I could definitely see that happening. That's uh, that's really interesting. Okay, I just want to cover a few more topics before we um, end. So, oh, well, let me just say as a comment, I think it's it's really cool that you're focusing as an economist on energy and really giving it a kind of primacy or at least one of the the fundamentals of what expands human productivity. Because you know everyone will talk about trade and trade is obviously a fundamental, but energy and machine power, I mean, that is a fundamental amplifier of human capability and, and, uh, and human productivity. Do you, so just tell us a little bit about how this is going to be incorporated in your next book and also just tell us about the book. Yeah. So the book, um, it's, it's called principles of economics. And, um, um, after writing the Bitcoin standard, a lot of people were really interested in the parts of the Bitcoin standard that are on Austrian economics. And so, um, in my mind, I think uh, Austrian economics is the only uh, version of the universe in which Bitcoin can exist because in all the other schools of thought, money is something that the government decides and money is whatever government says it is. Um, so Bitcoin says, no, money is whatever the market uh, Sorry, Austrian school says money is whatever the market is. And so it's the most fruitful um, method for analyzing Bitcoin in my mind. And I explain a lot of Austrian economics, which got a lot of people interested in it. And I think um, a lot of people told me they liked the way that I explained those concepts. And so it encouraged me to try and write a textbook that is uh, that, that communicates the main ideas and communicates them briefly, concisely, and in an intuitive way, and not in an overly academic way, not in an overly uh, mathematical way. It, 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 it's just trying to communicate the main concepts in economics that I think are very useful for people to think about and understand. And so um, I, it begins with defining economics, um, you know, as uh, uh, subjective, um, as we discussed earlier, and it analyzes economics from the concept of human action, which is Mises' uh, book. And building on that framework, I and, and, and then, you know, basically, so we take the first three chapters are Menger, subjective and uh, value and uh, marginal analysis. And then means is human action. And then the third chapter is essentially Julian Simon. Uh, where I differ a little bit from the Austrians is that I take Simon's um, idea that time is the only, human time is the only scarce resource and use that. Uh, as the uh, starting point of analysis using the same methods that the Austrian use, uh, because I think it's just a, a more fruitful way of um, it, it, it's, it's a useful currency to think about in terms of uh, thinking about all economic activity. So once we think about economics as humans acting in order to um, think, improve the quality and the quantity of time that they have, then we can think about all the main ways in which people um, do these actions and that's, um, you know, I, I, I list out what I believe is the most important uh, acts of economic, of economization to think about. And these are not entirely mutually exclusive categories, but they're very powerful um, conceptual uh, concepts in order to um, think about the world. So labor is one of them. Property is another one. Um, capital, which is a form of productive property, is another one. And then... Um, uh, um, non-physical capital or ideas or technology is the third one is uh, fourth one I think so technology is another one you know just the, the uh, 
ideas that are productive, uh, uh, recipes for doing things, and, and thinking about each one of these and how they improve life and what the implications of them are. And then um, trade as well is also another important one. And then money, which is a, the, the, the idea of um, a, a good which is used purely for exchange. And then beyond that, uh, I, I get into energy. And then building on all of these together, um, the concept of entrepreneurship. And then, uh, you know, once you've understood all of these, essentially the application of all of these in the modern world is what we call the market economy. So I, I build up towards understanding what the market economy is through explaining these individual um, concepts, capital and trade and technology and, um, and so on. So a world in which people are engaged in those things while uh, trading with one another, using money and um, uh, developing new technologies and accumulating capital and deploying modern energy. This is really what a modern market economy is. This is what capitalism is about. And it's, it's, it's an entrepreneurial system where people are applying all of these things every day in order to try and improve their lives. So that's, that's really the, the, the idea of the book. And then building on that, um, uh, the, there's more complex discussion of um, uh, society, a uh, market system and society and uh, the issues of security and uh, money and the monetary policy and uh, interest rates and banks and so on. I just want to emphasize how important I think it is. You mentioned that you differ from the Austrians, at least in emphasis in terms of time. And I just, I find time to be just the gift that never stops giving in terms of just thinking about everything really like personal yeah. issues, but economic issues. Also, I think it's very, val and I focus much more on time in the new version uh, of Moral Case. And I think it's also very valuable for communicating to people about the value. Because we, we often talk about wealth or goods, and it just kind of seems like, oh yeah, well, there's just a bunch of stuff and we don't really need that much anyway, at least in the Western. And it just, it's, versus if you talk about the, the, the quantity and quality of time, like everybody gets that and like, oh, somebody taking so this coercive policy is actually taking your time. Like somebody stole your time or yeah. they're lessening the quality of time. Like with energy, I think of it as uh, like there are three ways machine power improves time and three things in general you can do with time. I mean, one is it gives you more of it because it allows you to produce more things that sustain and extend your life. Two is it gives you more control of your time because you have to spend less time producing your basic sustenance and, and your basic production from nature. And then three, it gives you more quality options with which to spend your time, right? Like you can go jet skiing and whatever. There's all these different things that machine power makes possible either because you're using a machine directly or because you're using something that's cheap, like a surfboard that was made uh, by machines. And so it's just, I find that very motivating myself and I think other people find it motivating. So I'm excited to see with your book, the more it's put in terms of time, the more people can see these economic decisions as, as impacting every life uh, at every, you know, to use margin, margin in a different way, like at the margin, like every individual, you know, every incremental decision is taking away somebody's life because taking away their time. Absolutely. I, I agree entirely. And I think really this is, this is the most valuable lesson I've learned uh, from economics. And it's uh, when I was a university professor, whatever the course that I was teaching, I would always make sure that there was one lecture in which I was sat down students and explained to them the concept of time preference in economics, which I find to be really the most important uh, thing that you could learn in economics. Just the idea that um, it, time preference refers to the 
degree to which you prefer the present over the future. And it's something that is positive for everybody. You know, if I gave you the choice between, uh, should I give you $100 today or if I, or I'll give you the same $100 one year from now, assuming there's no inflation, no change in the value of the $100 in real term, if you were had the choice between taking them now or taking them in a year, you would definitely choose now, right? Definitely. Yeah, and everybody would choose it like that because, um, you know, you'd rather have it for this year and, uh, you know, you might not even survive until the next year. So people always prefer the present because life ends and life is uncertain. We never know when. And you, you made the point in the book, by the way, which I hadn't thought of, which is a great point about how with durable things, it means you get to use them longer, right? So like if you have a house that's going to last 50 years, well, if you get it earlier, that means you get to enjoy it more, which I thought was a great point as well. Yeah. Besides just, yeah, you, you could die at any given moment. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes you can enjoy the durable thing for longer if you have it. And so people always prefer the present over the future, but the degree to which we prefer it differs between one person and the other. So if I wanted to get you to give up on the $100 today, I'd need to offer you something uh, more. So if I gave you 110 next year, you might accept it. Somebody else might only need 105 to accept it. Somebody else might need 150. You know, if you have, if you need $150 next year in order to forego $100 today, that effectively means you discount next year by uh, almost 50% from what it is, uh, or well, 33% because 50. Uh, well, no, well, it depends on how you will, depends on the denominator. In any case, you discount it much more than the person who would take 105 rather than 105. So the person who would accept 105 next year is somebody who has a much lower time preference than a person who needs 150 in order to delay it for a year. And I find that to be really powerful. Like if, if you study there's some psychology research about, uh, you know, the marshmallow experiment is the most famous one where kids who are able to wait for the marshmallow end up doing much better in everything in life because they are able to delay gratification. But I think it's, it's such a powerful concept that I think it's, it's, it's really impossible to argue with it. Once you become aware of it, um, you know, if, if you, in my mind, if you're, if you're constantly present oriented and you can't think of the future, you have a very high time preference. It really doesn't matter how much money you make, or it doesn't matter what life throws at you. You will find a way to mess it up in the long run. Like if you keep not providing for the future, you will <laughs> fail. Eventually the future will catch up with you. And I, I'm the best example is if you look at, um, rock stars or athletes who, you know, make enormous amounts of money and then go broke very quickly. And, you know, you see some of them, they come from extreme poverty where the sums of money at the beginning of their career are even unimaginable. You know, you, when they're 16, uh, they can't even imagine what they would do with $10 million. And then they have a 20 year career during which they make $500 million. And then 10 years later, they're broke. And, you know, if you, if you ask them for all of the things that they wanted to spend money on when they were 16, they wouldn't have run up a tab that is equal to all no, of it. No, not even close. Yeah, but they still managed to spend it because, you know, there's always a bigger boat. There's always another car. There's always another house. There's always another thing you can spend on. And if you have money in your pocket and all you care about is the present, you will find a way to get rid of it to make the present better. And so eventually you will, you know, your time preference will get the best for you. And, you know, there's the, the, the opposite of the story, you know, the hare and the tortoise. There's the tortoise who might not have the talent to make tens of millions of dollars in um, athlete contract, but they get a normal job and they save and they accumulate capital and uh, 
they keep looking and working for the future and because they have some savings they can take advantage of opportunities for the future and they're protected from any kind of crisis destroying them financially because they have a little bit of a margin and safety net and so with time that pays off and they get um, more and more wealth and they get more and more capital and they accumulate it and i think it's uh, it, it's really just once you understand the element of time and once you understand that um it's really the most powerful currency in your hand and the way that you direct it and the way that you think about it is going to really be more important to your life than anybody else. Because ultimately you trade with other people, but you know, you'll do one trade with somebody else. You'll do maybe a hundred trades with somebody else, but you, you will never trade with anybody as much as you trade with yourself, as much as you trade with your own time, with your future self. And so when you decide that, you know, I'm going to be, I'm not going to work today and I'm going to just ignore uh, work. Well, you're going to be paying the cost. You, you know, you benefit from that today, but you pay the cost in the future. When you do go to work, you're, you know, you, you're charging yourself today. You're making yourself today pay, but future you is going to thank you for it. Yeah. Well, unless, and I, I was thinking about this because it's, I mean, the, the best thing is if you enjoy the work so that it, as close to as possible, like it's what you would choose if you had a hundred million dollars. Cause then it's then, right. Yeah. I mean, then you're, you're consuming, like your consumption of time is also like the quality of time that you would be, that you want to produce uh, for the future. So. Yeah. But I mean, to get to the point where you enjoy your work, the people who are able to do that are people, you know, it, it takes an enormous amount of discipline and sacrifice to get to that point where, you know, you can, you can enjoy something that's very productive for other people, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it, I, I think it, it, uh, it varies. This is a whole interesting discussion to have sometime just about how leisure time, like sometimes economists, I think like draw too much of a distinction between like productive time and leisure time, because it's ultimately about like, okay, what, what, time spent is going to give you the overall like most enjoyment of your time uh on earth and if i had 100 million dollars i would definitely still do a lot of work uh, yeah i think i agree yeah um awesome okay we got to wrap up any final messages for the audience and also then just remind them where to learn about you and where to get your economics course and your other uh valuable things that you have on your website um, I'm, uh, I've written uh, the Bitcoin standard and I teach Austrian economics on uh, my website, safeadeen.com. I'm also pretty active on Twitter uh, at safeadeen. And, uh, there's, I also have a weekly mailing list where I send out, um, interesting, uh, things I've come across every week. So you could sign up to that on my website. And I have uh, a bunch of courses, uh, on economics. If you are interested in Austrian economics, uh, you can sign up to my online courses. Uh, you can download uh, the video lectures and the notes. And then we have uh, weekly discussion seminars open to all students where you can come and join uh, for the discussion in order to uh, discuss the material. So you can learn at your own pace, but also you can always have a discussion seminar where you can come and join other students to discuss the material. And um, this is basically my job. I quit my university job and I'm doing this full time now. I'm uh, teaching online and I think this is um, you know, obviously I'm, I'm biased, so I'd say that, but I think this is the future of education, more of a peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, using the internet for peer-to-peer -peer interaction between students and teachers. 
Um, so check that out on uh, safedean.com. And uh, I've also got a couple of books coming up, The Principles of Economics textbook that I mentioned, and the sequel to the Bitcoin standard, which is the fiat standard. Oh, wow. I didn't know about that one. Okay, well, maybe I'll be able to get my hands on a uh, on a preview of that. Okay, and just one more thing is spell Safedean again so they, they yes. actually find it. S like sugar, A like apple, I like India, F like flower, E like echo, D like David, E like echo, A like apple, and N like November. That's Safedean. Awesome. Safedean, thanks for coming on the show. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Thanks again to Safedean Amos for joining me on the show. One comment he made that I meant to respond to, he talked about an idea of science by press release. And that's, I like that uh, expression, but I also thought there's something which we could call economics by press release. And, and this may even be what he was referring to in terms of you hear an announcement about biofuels or solar or wind. And it says, oh, this is some new technological development. And so now solar and wind or biofuels can, can win. And there's something just very odd about this because usually in most markets, we think, well, the way you demonstrate an idea is you actually prove it on the market. But in the realm of energy, all you need to do is make a claim and say that there's some breakthrough. And because people want a breakthrough, that can easily replace fossil fuels. And particularly if it's quote unquote renewable in terms of you know derived from the sun or direct sunlight or wind or some plant, it's just everyone is inclined to... Uh, to follow along because we have this idea that we should want green or renewable energy. But the thing I wanted to emphasize is just that the way you demonstrate an idea is true in terms of economics, which really means that something is truly cost effective. It creates the most value for the cost is you actually have to implement it in reality. And if we're talking about something like energy, it means you have to implement it in reality on a large scale and in energy also it's useful to think about scope. So you need energy to power all sorts of different kinds of machines and fossil fuels power, not just electricity producing machines, but also industrial process heat machines. So machines that are involved in things like uh, steel making, uh, you know, or in, uh, you know, making aluminum or making cement. And you, of course, then uh, heavy duty transportation machines or mobility machines. And so what fossil fuels have done in terms of producing energy that's cost effective on a scale of billions of people and for all different types of machines, that's just something amazing. And any, uh, anyone who just says in a press release, oh yeah, of course I can do this, it's easy. They're not at all appreciating the achievement that human beings have uh, have arrived at with fossil fuels and they're just it's just going to be another piece of of bs so i would just caution against any kind of economics uh by press release okay uh one other point i mentioned i talked last week and a little bit the week before about energytalkingpoints.com that's still going strong getting a lot of good feedback on that i just want to remind everyone to keep Looking at that, keep sharing that with any candidates you know, any citizens you know, and also if there are any shows that you think I should be on that have a good audience, definitely encourage them to reach out to me or, or you know, put them in contact. They can get in touch with me at alex 
at alexepstein.com. I've been doing a lot of media in the past week and I continue, plan to continue doing that through the election. So I've done some of the more right of center shows like the Charlie Kirk show and the Dennis Prager show and the show uh, Stu, I forget what Stu's, Struberger's show is called, but I did his show on The Blaze and I'm certainly happy to do more of those, but it would also be good to do some left of center shows. So anything you can recommend me to, uh, recommend me for, I would uh, appreciate anyone you can recommend me to. I would appreciate that's what I should have said. All right. That is it for this week. Hope you enjoyed the wide ranging discussion with Dr. Amos. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com to get on my mailing list. Go to alexepsteinlist.com. Uh, I'm on social media all over the place. And if you want to support our work at the Center for Industrial Progress, specifically to support our research and development efforts and our promotional efforts that make things like energytalkingpoints.com possible, you can become an accelerator at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. All right, next week we'll be back probably with another really interesting guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.